Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 200, and we're going to talk about the eye overlander problem. I've talked about it before, but it deserves a deep dive because it's going to pick where you're going to stay or not. We're also going to talk about an attack in Quartzite and what it means for all nomads everywhere. We'll mention some solar lights that you can use at night for security and a product review of CarPlay for those folks who don't have a stereo that does CarPlay. So welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. You have made it to episode 200, whether it's the first episode you've listened to or the 200th. I'm thrilled to have you here. I made a bunch of changes for episode 100. I'm actually not going to make any changes for episode 200, except that after this, we will be officially in season three. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I don't really do seasons, but basically up to 100 is going to be season one, up to 200 is going to be season two, and up to 300 will be season three. Big whoop. It doesn't matter. So let us continue on here. The eye overlander problem. So if you're new to this or just exploring van life, you may not have encountered iOverlander, but iOverlander is one of many apps that endeavors to find a place for you to stay at night, usually free, not always. And basically it's a, it's an app and a website. And when you go there, you can search on where you are and it will find things that you need. It'll find water and dump sites and repair places and laundry facilities, you know, whatever you might need. It is a crowd-sourced endeavor, and that's true for all of these. Quick note here, I'm not picking on iOverlander specifically in this segment. This is true for Campendium and Allstays and all of these different things. It sounds like a great resource, right? It was like, oh, geez, I'm in Atlanta. I need a place to stay. Pull up iOverlander and look and say, oh, well, this Cracker Barrel lets us stay here and this Walmart here and this street in this town doesn't mind it. It lists all these places, and it sounds like the most wonderful thing in the world, and it is. But there is a very large and growing problem with iOverlander that I uh, I don't really have a solution for. But I, I think you need to be aware of it when you're you're making your plans. And the problem is best illustrated by something that happened to me. So years ago, I was in South Dakota when I was during my visit of all the Auroras in the United States. I was visiting Aurora, South Dakota, and I needed a place to stay for the night. And I found this, it's a rest area on an interstate. It's a little unusual in that it's not actually on the interstate. You get off the interstate and drive about half a mile and and then you park. And it was a very nice, quiet, empty rest area. And I thought hey, this is a great place to spend the night for folks who are traveling, and I added it to iOverlander. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm a good boy, I'm contributing to the community, I took a couple of pictures and explained that I had two bars of AT&T service and, you know, listed all the amenities, there's water there and there's bathrooms and some vending machines, you know, that very typical thing that you would do if you're going to add something to iOverlander. And then I didn't think anything of it. But a couple years after that, I thought, you know, I should go back and look and see uh, if that's still available because I was going back to Aurora, South Dakota. And what I found on iOverlander was a mess. Apparently, my putting that there had made this site super popular, and a lot of the people who went there weren't very nice. They spent a week there. They left trash everywhere. They set camps up where, you know, they would like be barbecuing in the parking lot and they had chairs out and all this stuff. 
And the state got upset and added a bunch of no overnight parking signs, and now that site is off limits. And that's the problem. I had a perfectly good site to stay, and because I shared it with the world, now I don't. And now you don't either. And what do you do? What's the solution to this problem? I know a great place to spend the night near Garden of the Gods in southern Illinois. Not to be confused with Garden of the Gods in Colorado. It's a very different place, but not equally as beautiful, but pretty close. It's an amazing spot. If you're in southern Illinois, definitely want to check out Garden of the Gods. But there's not a lot of free parking or free camping near there, except for this one spot I found. And I have not put it on iOverlander, because if I do... I'm afraid the same thing's going to happen. It's going to get wrecked. It's going to create a negative experience for a whole bunch of people. And while this might sound selfish, it's like, well, I don't want to share the cool stuff I found. That's really not my motivation here. My motivation is to help the community. And unfortunately, by pointing out these parking spots, the community gets harmed. So... The way iOverlander and all of these places work is it's crowdsourced. Somebody will go to a place and type in, this place was great, blah, blah, blah. And then other people are supposed to check in when they stay there and say, yep, still cool, everything's good, it was a little loud at night, you know, I heard a lot of trucks, or it was very buggy, lots of mosquitoes. All these little tips to help people. And there's no vetting. You're basically trusting people based on their opinion. Nobody checks with the owners of these properties. Nobody's checking the town ordinances or the state laws or anything like that. People are just saying, hey, I parked here for the night and it was okay. And they're giving some impression that this is an official place to stay. I stayed here. You can too. Come on down. And that's simply not the case. And if one of these spots happens to be in a desert of places to stay or near something that people want to go to, like a national park or a theme park or something like that, well, they get ruined. And I'm not blaming the van life community for this. It's just, unfortunately, it's the way things are. If you let people in your secret garden, they're going to trample the flowers and well, that's what's happening here. RVers use these sites too. They have a slightly different ethic than most van lifers, and there's a huge overlap, and you know the generalizations are, are kind of silly. But, yeah, that is the problem. What is the solution? Well, the first solution is a form of karma in which if you treat the world as a nice place, it will be a nicer place. So, Please be an ethical parker, camper, whatever you're doing. Whenever you spend the night somewhere that isn't yours, treat it with respect. Don't make a lot of noise. Don't make a big spectacle of your presence. Don't unfurl your awning and have all your chairs out and have a big barbecue and light fireworks off. Yes, folks, I have seen that in Walmart parking lots. Don't do that. And certainly don't leave any trash. I mean, my rule for me personally is to take trash. I look for trash. I go to a site, and if I, it's not if I see trash. I will see trash. I'm going to find that trash. I will take at least one trash bag away that is not my trash. That's my personal ethic for these places. If we all agreed to do that, this wouldn't be a problem at all. But of course, that is not human nature. I don't understand people who are perfectly fine with throwing a soda bottle out the window of a car, but there are 
a great many of them, as anybody who's driven down any roads in the U.S. or honestly anywhere in the world can attest. The second thing to do is, and this is a personal benefit thing, don't trust iOverlander or Allstays or Campendium or anything like that. There are a few exceptions. You know, if, if there's a Cracker Barrel listed there and you've got six reports of the manager saying it's okay and they're recent reports, yeah, that's pretty reliable. And there are some places, some towns like Aurora, Nebraska, which I keep bringing up, have free campgrounds for travelers. Those kind of places are going to be fine. But you have to do your due diligence. And if you're using iOverlander to find a place to stay, always, always, always have a backup place to stay for those times when you roll in there and suddenly there's no overnight parking signs. Or you get the knock and you need to go somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's just a... Very basic van life tip is to always have a plan B, and I would argue a plan C. I had to do this recently. I, I had a plan to, let's see, this was coming back from VanFest, so a couple weeks ago. My plan was to leave Miami, as it happened. I was in Miami, and get to Georgia, and then spend the night at a rest area in Georgia. Like, okay. I like staying at rest areas. I've talked about that a lot. If you get the knock in a rest area, it's probably not a big deal. You just move on. That's And, and there's resources there. And it's a transient place. People are expected to come and go and leave and stuff. So I like rest areas. There's a big welcome center rest area right over the Georgia border, as there is in most states. And I parked there and, you know, used the restroom and bought something in the vending machine. And I was all set to spend the night there. And then I noticed a sign that said, no overnight parking. I thought, man, they ruined this too. And to me, the sign, no overnight parking, that's the end of it. There's no getting around that sign. That sign means you. You can't park here. And I was like, ah, dang, I'm tired. What am I going to do? And so I thought, well, I am going to take a nap. And then I'm going to drive and I'm going to go to the next rest area and see if they have the same signs. I think it was 45 minutes away. So I took like an hour nap, drove the 45 minutes, and sure enough, the next rest area did not have those signs. Now that doesn't mean the state of Georgia gave me permission to spend the night in that rest area. It means there's no signs, so it's not a problem there. They only put the signs up if it's a problem. Why was the Welcome Center a problem and not the rest area 45 minutes north? I don't know. It could be that people stop at Welcome Centers more often. That's a place where you get maps and things like that. It has more staff. They tend to be bigger. I don't know. It could be that it's within striking distance of Orlando and all the attractions there. Whatever the reason, there is a reason, and I had no problem spending the rest of the night at that other rest area. I saw something interesting in Florida, as I've, I've driven a lot in Florida lately. They were truck stops, which, by the way, are not always safe places to park. If you're in a truck, that's one thing, but if you're in an RV or a van, that's something completely different, and you're not necessarily welcome. But this Travel Center of America had a billboard with an LED sign under it, and the LED sign said, overnight parking, $5. Now, I didn't go there. I don't know if that $5 applied to trucks or just anybody. But I thought, you know, maybe that is the solution. You know, maybe we can convince these places with these massive parking lots 
to simply charge five bucks a night so we can stay there. I mean, look at all the empty malls in America. What if there was a way for someone to set up a trailer in the parking lot and charge five bucks a night? Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, I would pay five bucks a night for these trips. And I know if you're living on the road full time, five bucks a night, 150 bucks a month, it adds up. But just for those nights when you're traveling and you don't have time to do a lot of research for where you're going to stay, mm, five bucks is pretty good. So I don't know. That's a, it's a pipe dream. And, you know, we're, we're facing the problem where communities are trying to push the homeless out to who knows wherever. And we get lumped in with them and we are them. And it, it you know, I've talked about this a lot. But again, I don't have answers. If you have answers, please let me know. What can we do? about the iOverlander problem, but my purpose here today was to just make sure people know that this is a problem, and as wonderful as these apps are, and as good-intentioned as these apps are, they do create a problem, and uh, it makes me sad. Van Life News! So there have been a number of people reporting about an incident that happened in Quartzite last week. Now, Quartzite is a famous part of Arizona that has lots of BLM land, and a lot of people go there for the winter. It's where the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous is, where uh, you know thousands of nomads and van life people will head down for this, this conference that lasts two to three weeks. If you haven't heard of Bob Wells, well, you will. And he, he puts this thing on. It's a, it's a massive event. I've always wanted to go, actually. It's just so darn far from me that I, I haven't mustered up the gumption to actually do it. But there have been a lot of reports lately of crime problems in Quartzite. And one in particular, if you, if you read the headline, now these aren't actually making the real news. These are making YouTube news, which is almost like gossip. But the headline is Solo Female Nomad attacked while sleeping alone in her car. It was something like that. And there's, there's several of these. That sounds horrible, right? I mean, this is everybody's worst fear. And boy, if I were a solo female nomad, I would pay very close attention to this. And it is true that solo female nomads, van lifers, van dwellers, whatever term you would like, do have more things to worry about than me upper middle-aged white guy who weighs 250 pounds and kind of looks scary if haven't had a shower in a few days. <laughs> I have less to worry about than they do. But the story, as it was told, is that this woman was sleeping at a, a campsite in, in Quartzite in her car with her dog. And there were some people riding around in an OTV, some sort of an ATV, maybe a side-by-side. -side. I don't really know. It wasn't specified. And they were kind of making a lot of noise. It was about 11 o'clock or midnight. And then someone threw a rock at her car, smashed the back window where she was sleeping. It was like a hatchback, and she's sleeping right under there. And she was instantly bathed in glass. And, of course, freaked the heck out, because who wouldn't be? And she got up really quickly and got out of the car, and they drove off, and they were gone. And she called the police and found out that she was bleeding in multiple spots on her face and on her legs, and just a terrible, terrible experience. And this woman wants to remain anonymous, by the way. I don't know who she is, and I, I haven't talked to her. I don't know anything about this other than what's on YouTube. But now everybody's, like, saying that these men attacked her and injured her and... I'm sorry to say this, but I'm not sure that's actually true. I mean, these people were being obnoxious. There's no question about that. 
But I think equally likely that they didn't throw the rock, but that their OTV kicked up a rock and hit the back of their window. I mean, after all, they didn't, like, run over to her car and drag her out. I don't know what happened. It's very possible that the story happened exactly as it was described. But... My concern here is first with the woman who had this horrible experience because that is terrible and I'm glad the community is supporting her. I'm absolutely 100% for that. But I'm concerned now that this incident has created these echoes of other YouTube videos where they're making it sound like if you're a solo female and you head out on the road, you're going to get attacked. There's violent men around every corner and they're going to attack you and it's going to be horrible. And... It's just not true. I'm not saying that you shouldn't defend yourself and take steps to be safe. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that it is bad for the community to overstate things that have happened. We don't actually know that the men attacked her. It's possible, but I find it equally likely that the OTV they were in just kicked up a rock and hit the back window because that's something that's happened to me. (laughs) I was cutting the grass one day, and when I put the tractor away, I noticed that my wife's back window was smashed out, and I realized the tractor had kicked a rock up and broke the back window. So I know that's a thing that can happen. Anyway, again, I want to be very careful here. I'm, I'm not saying that anybody is lying here. I'm just concerned that when anything like this happens, it creates this unnecessary air of fear when the reality is is that there are solo female van lifers all over the country who've been doing it for years who have never had any problem that's not to say that they won't that's not to say that they don't need to take special precautions i would hate for someone to say well i'm not doing that van life thing because of a story like this. So I'm not going to link to any of the stories. You can Google and figure it out for yourself and search YouTube. And if you think I'm just dead wrong on this, go ahead and write me a note. I would be very happy to read it and respond. I, I am concerned that sometimes we get wrapped up in the emotion of something that happened without actually thinking about what probably actually happened and what its impact should be. So there, I've, I've said enough about that. Folks, if you are hearing ads in this program, please let me know because there should be no ads because a number of you have stepped forth to sponsor the show so that there are no ads. Yet, I still think that some of you might be hearing ads. So if you are hearing ads, please contact me and I want to get to the bottom of it because we have a number of generous people paying for you not to have ads. If you would like to be one of those generous people, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash built to go and you can either buy me a gallon of diesel or become a member and we will continue to have no ads, which makes me happy and I hope it makes you happy too. Tech Talk. Let's talk about solar security lights. You may have seen these things on Amazon. They've gotten very popular, but there's little black rectangular kind of triangular lights that have a big solar panel and a bunch of LED lights and a little white motion detector. And you can buy them in like sets of four or six. And these used to be one of those as seen on TV things, but now they're just everywhere. And I have purchased several of these. I have a few down in Tiki Bago land. I travel with a few. And I think they're actually pretty good. What I do is if I'm camping somewhere, not not in a rest area, but if I'm camping somewhere in the woods or in a field or something like that, I will take four of these lights and put them on all four corners of the van, like maybe a foot away from the van. 
And what happens is during the day, the sun charges them up. And then at night, if anything comes near the van, the van lights up. Now, I do this mostly so that if somebody else is driving around out there or something like that, they notice there's a van there. You know, I, I mean, my, my ambulance is pretty obvious. I have reflective stripes on the side. It would be pretty hard to miss the ambulance. But still, I like having that, like, a perimeter set up so they know that, hey, there's something here. I should avoid it. This worked really well at VanFest, where I was parked at VanFest. There was this road that we had big trucks going down for the carnival that was there. And I liked having the lights there so that they could see. This is kind of the line. We don't want the trucks to get any closer to that. Now, these things are cheap, and they do have a fairly high failure rate. Uh, the last pack I bought, I think it was six of them. It was 30 bucks. Five of them worked fine. One of them didn't work. Eh, so not the end of the world. And over time, they don't use the best quality batteries, and they just don't last that long. You can replace the batteries. They're actually you know, lithium batteries, but the cost of replacing them is probably not worth just replacing the whole unit. That said... They're very, very bright, but I don't think they're great for, like, general lighting. I don't think you would want to have one just to kind of light up your campsite. They're more for security and for motion detection, and they are startling. I have one on the back of the Tiki Bago, and as I walk up to the Tiki Bago, it will surprise me because it just shines this bright light at me. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't take long for somebody up to no good to figure out that this is just a, a, a security light, light and there's nobody actually there. It would make you wonder. You know, it would certainly make you a little less comfortable about breaking into something. So I think they're a good solution. I have seen some people in their vans attach them to the sides of their vans permanently. Like they'll just screw them into the side of the van, although some of them are magnetic. I do not do that. Uh, I, I like to deploy them as I see fit, but that is an option too. And you can turn them off. So if they're, you're like parked in a neighborhood, you don't want them to come on at night. Yeah, you can turn them off so they won't come on. So it's something to consider. For 30 bucks, you can have lights that will come on all around your van and maybe give you a little extra sense of security or a little bit of a safety factor if you need to like take a little walk outside the van in the middle of the night to take care of some business. Product review. So I just bought a 2019 Ram 1500 truck that had a fairly fancy stereo in it, but no CarPlay, no Android Auto. And I am rather addicted to CarPlay. I find it very useful for long drives. It lets me do things without touching the phone, which I think is very important. And I was disappointed that this truck did not have CarPlay. Now, the stereo in this truck, like in many vehicles, is fairly integrated into the truck. It actually is communicates with the dashboard you can program some dashboard features with the radio and i was like god if i replace this radio what am i gonna break so i found this thing called a jensen jda shcp which gives you wireless car play without changing out the stereo the way this thing works is it's it's a screen and there's a suction cup mount and then a cord that goes into the cigarette lighter outlet. And then it communicates with your phone and your existing stereo over Bluetooth. And uh, it works. Uh, the thing was like 200 bucks, and yeah, it solved my problem. It is not the best stereo I've ever had. Uh, it has some very strange quirks, 
but it is absolutely acceptable in a, in a pretty good solution if you don't want to rip out the original radio. Now, I only have iPhones for doing this. I did not try Android Auto. I'm assuming it works as well, but you would have to test that for yourself. For CarPlay, I don't really understand how this works, but I hooked it up with the cable to my phone, and CarPlay worked as I thought it would. Then I turned on wireless CarPlay, unhooked the cable, turned off Wi-Fi, turned off Bluetooth, and it's still connected. <laughs> I don't know what protocol wireless CarPlay is using, but all I have to do is bring my phone in the car, and bang, I get CarPlay on the screen. I, I literally do not understand the technology. Apple's doing something fast and loose with their wireless protocols, but I don't care. It works. Now, you can use this thing in three different ways. You can have it talk Bluetooth to the car radio. You can have it use an aux cord, you know, just a cord where you plug it into the car radio. Or it has its own built-in tuner, and it'll broadcast like on 87.1, and you can set your radio to 87.1. That's the worst way to do it. Um, it, that's your last resort that off, almost always never sounds good and it's subject to fade and interference and things like that. But hey, if you're in an emergency situation, that could work. I have a weird problem with it that I haven't solved yet is that it actually has a speaker in it. So you do have the option of, if you don't care about music or anything and you just want this for navigation, it has a speaker in it and you can just plug your iPhone or Android phone into it and the speaker in it is good enough to get directions. And I actually used it that way for a while. The problem I have is that I have it hooked up to the stereo, and I do use it for music. So now, music will come out of the speakers properly, but Siri responses and CarPlay directions from Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever come out of the little speaker. I don't know how to change that. Uh, for phone calls, when a phone call comes in, you get to pick where the phone call comes out. You can use the car stereo, the phone itself, or this device. Uh, what I need is a switcher like that for everything else, and I haven't found it yet. And uh, I'll keep looking for it. So uh, another drawback is that you end up with cables everywhere. The plug that plugs into the cigarette lighter does have a USB charger there, but it's a fairly wimpy one. So whether you use that or not, I don't know. Eventually, what I'm going to do is hardwire a, another 12-volt socket into the truck, and then I'm going to plug this into that, and I'll hide all those cables. But right now, I have cables going everywhere. So, you know, that's kind of the problem with all these add-on things is you end up with a lot of cables. But, hey, for 200 bucks you can add CarPlay to just about any vehicle. And the reason I picked this one over all the other no-name ones, you know, with all the ones with the weird Chinese names that you don't know where they came from, I picked a Jensen because that's a company that I know exists and I can potentially get support from them and download manuals and things like that. So that's why I picked the Jensen. You'll see a whole bunch of other ones that have things like an integrated car camera, a, a dash cam, or maybe they will just mirror the screen so you can watch YouTube on it, which I do not want. If that's something you want, that might be better for you, but I wanted something that would actually obey U.S. laws because you can get a heck of a ticket if a cop finds out you've been watching YouTube while you're driving. So anyway, that is the Jensen. Jensen, J-D-A-S-H-C-P. It's 220 bucks with a $20 coupon right now on Amazon. I will have a link in the show notes. Tales from the Road. I tell this tale now as a caution. <laughs> because I had a very unpleasant experience on my trip back from Florida with the Airstream. 
Now, this is an Airstream story, this is an RV story, but it does apply to some ways in van life, which I will point out at the end. So, here's the story. I went in the morning to the RV dealer, who I shall not name, and uh, they're supposed to take some time and walk you around the rig and explain how everything's working, and then you get to make sure, you know, everything's working. And it was sadly very apparent that I knew much more about how this rig worked than the guy who was showing me how things worked. I had to correct him several times, and there was a number of things that I was... I I basically just gave up, and and I kind of ignored him (laughs) and went around the rig and checked things for myself. Now, I had never had this type of rig before, and there were some of the things I didn't understand, and one of those was the air conditioning controls. So this has a Dometic controller that controls the air conditioner and the heat in one unit. Okay, that's not too complicated. Except this Airstream has two heaters. It has a heat pump built into the air conditioner, and it has a traditional furnace, a propane furnace. And the only part I tested was the heat pump. I didn't think anything of the furnace. I I don't know why. I mean, it was probably because it was 70 degrees out, but I was like, okay, whatever. It works. I'm good. I'm going to hit the road. And I drive out of there with no manuals and very few keys because somehow they had lost all the manuals and keys. That's a whole separate issue. Although they did tell me that not only did they lose the keys, they couldn't get them. You know, Airstream doesn't make the keys anymore, so we can't give you keys. Uh, And the one key that I did have for the deadbolt kind of didn't work unless you push the door in just a certain way. Anyway, I was annoyed. (laughs) But... I was much, much more annoyed when I got to where I was stopping for the evening and it was cold. And remember, I was not hooked up to 110 volts. I was in a rest area and I wanted to turn on the furnace and I go to the controls and there's a setting for auto and there's a setting for AC and there's a setting for heat pump and there's a setting for off and there's no setting for furnace. And there I'm like, what? Oh, there must be a separate thermostat for the furnace, right? I mean, you know, why have it integrated when you can just have a regular little thermostat and no, no, there was no extra thermostat for the furnace. So what's wrong? Well, I'll save you the hours and days of troubleshooting I had to go through, but after extensive Googling, I figured out that at some point in this RV's lifespan, the air conditioner had either been swapped or the control board had been swapped, and they didn't program it right. The way this thing works is a wire goes from the furnace up to the air conditioner and into a control box, and that's what communicates with the thermostat. And when they had replaced or serviced the air conditioner... And I know they did, because when I got up on the roof, I could see the scrape marks from them moving the thing. It weighs 75 pounds. They didn't set the dip switches right. There's a bunch of dip switches that tell... A dip switch is a dual inline position switch. It's this little tiny switch that you need like a pen or something to set. It's an old-fashioned thing that hardly anyone uses anymore. But they're in this controller for this Dometic Penguin 2 air conditioner. They had set it wrong. And they, they basically, it looked like they missed the furnace button and hit a button for dehumidify, which this doesn't have. I don't actually know what happened, but I know that nobody ever tried the furnace after this work was done on this thing. And I don't know whether it was done a week ago or three years ago. I have no idea. And that's because this is a Florida RV. This thing spent most of its time in Florida and they didn't ever use their furnace. The heat pump will work down to 40 or 35 degrees. There'd be no reason to burn propane. 
Anyway, I was super annoyed, and I, I, it took me a long time to fix it, and it took a lot of Googling. There's nothing in the manual. I basically had to run into other people with this problem and figure out how they solved it, and I did, and a lot of them said exactly what I had thought, that the techs who replaced the air conditioner hadn't set the dip switches properly, and I finally found a picture of them, and I was able to fix it. It took a lot of restarting and resetting and all that. Anyway, bottom line is, I have a furnace now, it works great, and we were really happy to have it this weekend. But why am I telling you this story? Well, if you remember in the very long bonus episode I did a couple episodes ago, I talked about you are the expert. And holy cow, is that true in the case of buying a used RV. See, I didn't buy this from an Airstream dealer. I bought it from a very large dealer in Florida who sells all kinds of RVs. And even though they told me they were experts on Airstreams and that many of them had worked at Airstream before, they didn't know a thing about the specifics of this Airstream. Although one could argue that this furnace problem was not that. The bottom line is they just didn't check the furnace. And if they had, I'm not confident they could have fixed it. Now, how this applies to you is that you are in a much better position if you build out your own rig than if you get someone else's built-out rig. Now, I might be selling my ambulance at in some point, not, not any time terribly soon, but in months or maybe a year, I might be selling it because I have too many vehicles right now. And I will completely make sure I go over everything I did with the person who buys it, and I will write up a manual. You aren't going to get that in most cases. They'll give you a walkthrough maybe, but they're not going to mention little things like, I had problem with this connection here, this was rubbing here, so I put some tape on it. You know, all that little stuff that actually is going to matter when you're troubleshooting. So, yeah, you are the expert whether you want to be or not. And I am now an expert in these dometic thermostats, which isn't something I wanted to be, but I was forced to be. And had I built all that myself, which I'm not going to build an Airstream by myself, I absolutely would have known exactly what the problem was and been able to fix it quickly. The other lesson, and this is a lesson that I'm really embracing more and more, is complexity is bad. You know, there's no reason for this one thermostat to control everything. I mean, all right, it's kind of nice. Like, for example, if the heat pump can't keep the rig warm enough, it'll turn on the furnace as well and kind of attack the heating problem from two directions. You can also set it so that it'll stay at 72 degrees no matter what, meaning it'll turn on the air conditioner or the furnace or the heat pump, depending on what it needs. That's all kind of nice. But holy cow, it makes troubleshooting a pain in the butt. And if this thing had just had a regular thermostat for the furnace, like everything else I've ever encountered had, it would have been dead simple to fix. I could have checked for voltage and I would have found out there's no voltage. I mean, more and more stuff that's computerized and does multifunctional stuff and that uses data cables rather than power cables, which is how this thing worked. It actually has a telephone cable that goes up to the air conditioner on the roof, uh, making it almost impossible to troubleshoot. That stuff is bad. When you're looking at buying a van, remember that simple is often better. Manual jacks are better than uh, automatic jacks. Manual awnings are better than electric awnings. That kind of thing. Uh, because eventually you're going to get to a point where you need to troubleshoot something. And you can't simply because you can't see anything. And in the way the world is going, we're going to get into that more and more and more. But, you know, you can fight it a little bit still now, and I encourage you to do so. Resource recommendation. 
Holy cow, am I thrilled to have found this. I got an email out of the blue from Nomad Life Wiki. Now, there's no person's name associated with this. I don't know who is doing this, and they apparently want to remain anonymous, and I'm going to help them. I'm not. I, if I ever figure out who they are, I will not tell you who they are unless they ask me to. But you know Wikipedia, right? What if there was a Wikipedia dedicated to van life? And uh, there is, and it's completely fleshed out and ready to go. I mean, it, it's a new venture. It has a few bugs. I tried to edit some things in there, and I wasn't able to because of some errors. But that doesn't matter. There's well over a thousand articles in this thing already about every aspect of van life. What different types of refrigerators are there? What different types of toilets are there? How do you approach finding a place to stay at night? What types of insulation are there and which one should you choose? And on and on and on. And there's no ads and they're not trying to sell anything. It's just this massive database of van life knowledge. And I am thrilled this thing exists. There's lists of podcasts that you should listen to. There's lists of YouTube content you should check out. Basically, every aspect of van life is included in here. And it, it's built to grow. Hey, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, no, no, that's built to go. Anyway, it's this thing has the potential to be the main hub for all nomadic life going forward because it has topics on everything. And being a wiki, they're actually, it's actually pronounced wiki, but I can't make myself do that. Being a wiki, it will just keep growing as people add more and more stuff. So I don't know who did this thing. I do know that they wrote to me and asked me to promote it. And heck, here I am promoting it. Go check this out. Nomadlife.wiki. I'll have a link in the show notes. And search on anything to do with van life. And it will probably be there. And if it's not, you should be able to create the article yourself by registering an account. Although, like I said, there's a bug somewhere that I can't do that right now. But I, I hope that that's fixed soon. So... This is huge, guys. This is a very big deal, and I will probably be talking about it again. So go check it out. Well, thanks very much for listening to episode 200. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If you need to get a hold of me for any reason, I am Jeff at built to go That's two Ts, not three, not one, dot com. I left that part out, didn't I? I shouldn't have done that. And until next time, remember the words of Jim Rohn, who said... To solve any problem, here are three questions to ask yourself. First, what could I do? Second, what could I read? And third, who could I ask?